The True Story of the Nephilim Origins of the Nephilim Angels' origins are distinct from those of humans. They were made on different times and for different reasons. However, scripture indicates a portion of Satan's fallen angels failed to keep their proper domain by materializing and interacting with humans in ways angels were never meant to do. This interaction is depicted in Genesis chapter 6 verses 1 through 4. And it came to pass when men began to multiply in the face of the earth and daughters were born unto them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were fair, and they took them wives of all which they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not always strive with man, for that he also was flesh, yet his days shall be an hundred and twenty years. There were giants in the earth in those days, and also after that, when the sons of God came in unto the daughters of men, and they bare children to them. The same became mighty men which were of old, men of renown. This refers to the unnatural progeny of the partnership between the sons of God and the daughters of men. However, there were individuals of distinctive size on the earth, both before and after the flood. These ones before the flood were notable because of the diabolical element of their parentage. They were the mighty men of old, men of renown. At first glance, there is no indication of angelic or demonic involvement. A passage in Job, on the other hand, provides a better understanding. God explains to Job his omnipotence by recounting his power over creation. Where wast thou when I laid the foundations of the earth? Declare if thou hast understanding. Who hath laid the measures thereof if thou knowest? Or who hath stretched the line upon it? Whereupon are the foundations thereof fastened? Or who laid the cornerstone thereof, when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Job chapter 38 verses 4 through 7 The morning stars are best interpreted as angels. We also know that mankind had not yet been created when God laid the foundation of the earth. So the reference to sons of God is another reference to angels, implying that the sons of God in Genesis 6 are also angels. The three main perspectives on the identity of the sons of God are as follows. Number one, they were fallen angels. Second, they were powerful human rulers. Or third, they were godly descendants of Seth, intermarrying with wicked descendants of Cain. The fact that the phrase sons of God always refers to angels in the Old Testament lends support. Genesis chapter 6 verses 1 through 2 contrasts the sons of God with man, implying that these are non-human beings. Genesis chapter 6 verse 1 says that man began to multiply and daughters were born to them. The Hebrew word for man is the generic term for mankind as used in Genesis chapter 5 verses 1 through 2. 
The sons of God are contrasted with man. Thus, the sons of God were distinct from men and married all mankind's daughters. As a result, the sons of God must be non-human beings of some kind. The context implies that the Nephilim were the resulting offspring of spirit beings and humans. The Nephilim, or fallen ones in Genesis chapter 6 verse 4, are mysterious personalities, the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The text does not explain how the Nephilim arrived. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and bore children to them, it simply states. But why are the Nephilim mentioned in Genesis 6 alongside the intermarriage of the sons of God and daughters of man? It is unclear how these mighty men of renown came about if they were not the outcome of intermarriage between spirit beings and humans. Jude likely understands Genesis chapter 6 verses 1 through 4 to refer to the intermarriage between spirit beings and humans. Jude 6 tells of angels who did not stay within their position of authority, but left their proper dwelling. Unless Jude is referring to an unknown event, he appears to be referring to the angels who left heaven to live on earth in Genesis chapter 6 verses 1 through 4. These arguments support the traditional view that the sons of God mated with human women and gave birth to the Nephilim. Though this may appear strange to modern ears, the same could be said for the entire Bible. Truth is stranger than fiction, and the world God has created is far from what we commonly believe. Why would they do something like this? The answer is not explicitly given in the Bible. These sons of God are evil, twisted beings, so nothing they do should surprise us. In terms of a specific motivation, one theory holds that these beings were attempting to pollute the human bloodline in order to prevent the Messiah from appearing. God had promised that the Messiah would crush the head of the serpent, Satan, one day. Genesis chapter 3 verses 8 through 15. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly, and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. 
he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. We can deduce why Satan sent his angels to intermarry with human women, directly or indirectly. Satan attempted to pollute mankind's genetic pool with satanic corruption, planting something resembling a genetic pathogen in order to render humans unfit to bear the seed of the woman. The Messiah, promised in Genesis chapter 3 verse 15. The Savior could not be born of a demon-possessed mother. So, if Satan could succeed in infecting the entire race, the Deliverer could not come. And Satan came close to succeeding. The people had become so polluted that God decided to relaunch with Noah and his sons and imprison the demons who had polluted it so they could never do it again. God's reaction to this great wickedness. My spirit shall not strive with man forever. God did not intend for the human race to remain in this rebellious state indefinitely. God will not woo us indefinitely. There will come a time when he says no more. We have no promise God will draw us some other day. Yet his days will be 120 years. This is interesting, as the flood also happened 120 years after this announcement. This violation of God's prescribed boundaries so frustrated him that he immediately sent a flood to destroy the entire earth and all traces of these unholy unions. The Nephilim were one of the primary reasons for the great flood in Noah's time. Immediately after the mention of Nephilim, God's word says, The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. The Lord was grieved that he had made man on the earth, and his heart was filled with pain. And the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, and the creeping thing, and the fowls of the air, for it repenteth me that I have made them, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Genesis chapter 6 verse 6 states, The Lord was sorry. Other translations use the word repent here. The Hebrew word for feeling sorry or repentance is nakam, and it means to be in mourning, to sigh deeply. To say that the Lord repented is God using human language to help us understand his heart. The verse implies that human sin broke God's heart. God is complete love. He loves us and does not want anything to go wrong with us. It breaks his heart when we sin, and he is broken over our sins when we sin. Genesis chapter 6 verses 11 through 13. The earth also was corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. And God looked upon the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted his way upon the earth. And God said unto Noah, The end of all flesh is come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them.
and behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Were there Nephilim after the flood? It appears that the fallen angels committed their sin again after the flood. However, it is likely that it occurred to a much lesser extent than before the flood. The Israelites returned to Moses with the following information after scouting the land of Canaan. Numbers chapter 13 verse 33 And there we saw the giants, the sons of Anak which come of the giants. And we were in our own sight as grasshoppers, and so we were in their sight. In the Old Testament, giant is most commonly referred to by the word Rephaim. Throughout the entirety of the Old Testament's narrative, the Rephaim serve as a fascinating and significant recurring motif. Where does the Bible mention Rephaim? The Rephaim are first mentioned in Genesis 14. The Bible relates the political situation that led to Abraham's nephew Lot and the people of Sodom and Gomorrah being taken captive. Before that, King Keterleomer conquered the Raphaites at Ashtoreth Karnaim. That same king also defeated the Zuzim and the Emim. If we assume that the Rephaim, along with the Zuzim and the Emim, were giants, then the Bible is implying that King Keterleomer was a powerful king. He defeated giant armies. As King Keterleomer rose to power and consolidated nations and lands, other kings formed a confederation to oppose him. Sodom and Gomorrah were part of the confederation. After the confederation loses in a battle against King Keterleomer and his allies, their territory is raided, and Lot is among the captives. Abraham learns about these occurrences from a survivor. Abraham gathers his people's arms and leads them into battle, where they join forces with other monarchs to defeat Keterleomer. They are successful in the end. The Rephaim, along with other large people, are mentioned in Deuteronomy chapter 2, verses 20 through 21. That also was accounted a land of giants. Giants dwelled therein in old time, and the Ammonites called them Zamzumans a people great, and many, and tall as the Anakims. But the Lord destroyed them before them, and they succeeded them, and dwelt in their stead. Deuteronomy is a book that contains Moses' final words before Joshua sends the Israelites into the Promised Land, and Moses recounts much of Israelite history. In Deuteronomy 3, there is an interesting story about King Og of Bashan, a giant man who was the last of the Rephaim. The name Rephaim, which literally means terrible ones, gives us an indication of the intimidating and fearsome nature of these individuals. As we delve into the passages of the Old Testament that speak of the Rephaim, we find that the context of these passages describes them as giants. And while the term Rephaim is often used to describe these towering figures, it is important to note that the Hebrew word Rephaim has two distinct meanings. Firstly, in poetic literature, 
The word Rephaim is used to refer to departed spirits whose dwelling place is Sheol. This meaning is figurative and serves as a description of the dead, like our concept of a ghost. Secondly, the word Rephaim is used to describe a mighty people with tall stature who lived in Canaan. This meaning does not refer to a specific group but rather serves as a descriptive term for a group of people with a specific characteristic, in this case, tall stature. Og is referred to as the last of the Rephaim in Deuteronomy chapter 3 verse 11 and later in the books of Numbers and Joshua. In the days of Moses, Og king of Bashan was a mighty and infamous Amorite king who reigned at Ashtoreth who fought the Israelites on their way to the Promised Land. As the Israelites journeyed towards the Promised Land, they encountered many formidable foes, and King Og was one of them. He fought fiercely against the Israelites and led his entire army against them. Before the Israelites fought King Og, they also had to deal with King Sihon of the Amorites. But the Lord, had already given him and his territory to Israel. So, the Israelites had the victory before even starting the battle. Now, the king Israel had to deal with was King Og of Bashan, who also sent his entire army against Israel. Og was another Amorite king who posed no threat to Israel, because the Lord had already given him and his territory to Israel. Before he even put on his armor, Og's defeat was a foregone conclusion. The Israelites then marched toward Bashan, where King Og confronted them at Edrei. Because of Gog's reputation, the Israelites were terrified. Do not be afraid of him, for I have delivered him into your hands, along with his entire army and his land, God assured Moses. According to the biblical account, Og was the ruler of 60 different walled cities. Og, like Sihon, marched out against Israel with his entire army to fight. And as in the case of Sihon, God had already decided to hand over the king, along with his entire army and land to Israel. Israel slayed the entire forces and conquered all 60 cities in the kingdom of Og, which had the same tall walls as Sihon's. In addition to this, Og was a very large man and slept in a bed made of iron that was nine cubits long and four cubits wide, thirteen and a half feet long and six feet wide. The inclusion of this detail draws attention to Og's massive stature. A man in need of this size bed was most likely tall, ten or 11 feet. According to Deuteronomy chapter 3 verse 11, Og was a descendant of the Raphaites, indicating a man of great stature or giant. His colossal bed had become famous and no doubt had been saved as a memento. Joshua chapter 12 verse 4, and Og king of Bashan, one of the remnant of the Rephaim, who lived at Ashtoreth and at Edriad. The news of the victory spread quickly, installing fear in the hearts of those in Canaan. Rahab, 
A Jericho prostitute believed the Lord had power even over that heavily fortified city because she and others had heard of the victory over Sihon and Og. Moses used the victory to encourage the Israelites as he left them in the charge of Joshua and about to enter Canaan. Deuteronomy chapter 31 verse 4 And the Lord will do to them as he did to Sihon and Og, the kings of the Amorites, and their land when he destroyed them. Despite King Og's enormous size and strength, God granted Israel's army victory and they took possession of the land of Bashan. Joshua chapter 9 verses 9 through 10 Perhaps you don't know what lies across the valley, but look at that worry in comparison to the Lord God himself and say by faith, The battle is yours, Lord. It is your battle. I lean on you. It is God's love for us that causes him to bring us to an end of our own strength. He sees our need to trust him, and his love is so great that he will not let us live another day without turning over our arms to him. Our fears, our worries, even our confusion, so that nothing becomes more significant to us than our Father. Never ever forget it. The battle is the Lord's. God does not tremble in the presence of giants, and his children should not either. Og king of Bashan was one of the last of this race of giants. Og and his sons all died as a result of their foolish opposition to God's people. Manasseh's half-tribe inherited Og's territory. David battles with the Philistines several times throughout his life, and one famous place was called the Valley of Rephaim, a place southwest of Jerusalem in the land of Judah. Both the Ammonites and the Moabites had a word for giants. The Ammonites named them Zuzim, and the Moabites called them Emim. According to the Bible, the Canaanite word for giants was the Anakim, and all these people groups that lived in the region of Canaan were considered to be Canaanites. The Anakites Before the arrival of the Israelites, the Anakim or Anakites were a formidable race of giants, warlike people who occupied the lands of southern Israel near Hebron. The Anakim's ancestors can be traced back to Anak, the son of Arba, who was regarded as the greatest man among the Anakim at the time. The name Anakim most likely means long-necked. The Hebrews believed they were descendants of the Nephilim. Fear gripped the Israelites, who saw themselves as grasshoppers in their sight. Numbers chapter 13 verse 33. The Twelve Israelite Spies and the Nephilim Giants of the Promised Land As Israel reached the Jordan River, Moses dispatched twelve spies into the Promised Land. Their mission was to gather information about the land. One spy from each of the twelve tribes of Israel entered Canaan. These individuals were given the task of conducting reconnaissance. They were tasked with exploring the land of Canaan and bringing a report back to the people of the nation. 
they were going to find out how to get to Canaan, determine whether the area was suitable for living in, and gather information on the Canaanite people's military prowess. It was a crucial juncture for the Israelite tribes at this time. Given all the experiences that the people have gone through in the previous months of preparation and journey, at last, at long last, it was time to claim God's word, to believe in his power, to march in his name, and to enter his land. All twelve spies were tribal leaders. When they had gone up into the Negev, the south country, they came to Hebron, and Ahiman, Shishai, and Talmai, the descendants of Anak, were there. Now Hebron was built seven years before Zoan in Egypt. Then they came to the valley of Eshkol, cluster of grapes, and from there cut down a branch with a single cluster of grapes, and they carried it on a pole between two of them, with some of pomegranates and the figs. That place was called the Valley of Eshkol, Cluster of Grapes, because of the cluster of grapes which the sons of Israel cut down there when they returned from spying out the land at the end of forty days. Numbers chapter 13 verses 21 through 25 The descendants of Anak were there. This is the first biblical mention of these people. They were significant people and thought to be fierce warriors. Deuteronomy chapter 9 verse 2 A people great and tall, sons of Anakim, whom you know and of whom you have heard it said, who can stand before the sons of Anak. They saw the descendants of Anak and Hebron. Instead of looking to the patriarchs and the promises, the spies noticed sizes of buildings and statures of persons. They averted their glance from the tombs of the fathers, and they neglected the promise of God. They were too preoccupied with the sandal sizes of three huge men who lived in Hebron. The journey of discovery lasted for a total of 40 days and covered approximately 250 miles, 400 kilometers. The number 40, whether it be 40 days or 40 years, is frequently connected with trials and tribulations throughout the Bible. The returning spy spoke and showed all of Israel what they saw in the land. The spies appeared to have the impression that they were more likely on a mission from Israel than they were on a mission from God. What God had promised concerning the land turned out to be accurate. The fact that they were able to bring back fruits such as grapes, pomegranates and figs demonstrates how agriculturally productive and blessed Canaan was. If the spies' faith was tested during their 40-day tour of the country, they failed. They didn't believe God could or would keep his promise to give Israel this land, as stated in God's covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Presumably, they left in confidence, with a spirit of divine adventure, but they returned in fear groveling before men, no longer fearful of God. Numbers chapter 13 verse 30 Then Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and take possession of it, for we will certainly conquer it. 
Caleb commanded the people to immediately, at once trust God, obey God, and take the land. He understood that in the Lord, they were well able to overcome it. It took great courage for this man to stand against the tide of unbelief and doubt. Caleb had the spirit of Romans chapter 3 verse 4. Let God be true, but every man a liar. Numbers chapter 13 verses 31 through 33. But the men who had gone up with him said, We are not able to go up against the people of Canaan, for they are too strong for us. So they gave the Israelites a bad report about the land which they had spied out, saying, The land through which we went in spying it out is a land that devours its inhabitants, and all the people that we saw in it are men of great stature. There we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak are part of the Nephilim, and we were like grasshoppers in our own sight, and so we were in their sight. F. B. Meyer compared the perspective of the ten unbelieving spies to that of the two faithful spies, Caleb and Joshua. They saw the same spectacles in their survey of the land, but the result in the one case was panic, in the other, confidence and peace. What made the difference? It lay in this, that the ten spies compared themselves with the giants, whilst the two compared the giants with God. Remarkably, two men saw the same things, the identical grapes, the identical Canaanites, the identical land, and the identical cities. One, Caleb came away strong in faith. Ultimately, faith or unbelief is not rooted in circumstances or the environment, and faith is rooted in a heart that trusts God and His promises. Ten fearful men can outshout two brave men. All twelve spies received the same promise. All twelve spies received the same opportunities. However, there were differences. The majority said no, and two said go. Their sour mood, pessimistic outlook, and negative reports spread like wildfire throughout the Israelite camp. It was indeed a land flowing with milk and honey, but there were giants in the land, they exclaimed. There is no way we can enter and possess it. Even though Joshua and Caleb made the same journey and saw the same things as the other ten spies, they returned with an enthusiastic positive report. They never doubted the Israelites' ability to take the land. They freely admitted the obstacles, but they knew nothing could stop God. They returned saying, yes, there are giants in the land, but they're munchkins in comparison to our God. We can have them and the land. And by the way, Canaan indeed does flow with milk and honey. They rebelled against God. Deuteronomy chapter 1 verses 26 through 28, refusing to enter the land God had promised them. We can infer that were larger than average in size, because they described themselves as grasshoppers in their eyes. Moses exhorted the Israelites not to be afraid of the Anakim, Deuteronomy chapter 1 verse 19, but they refused to believe God's promises. As a result, God was enraged. 
Deuteronomy chapter 1 verses 34 through 39, and barred the evil generation from entering the promised land. Deuteronomy chapter 1 verses 34 through 39, and the Lord heard the voice of your words, and was wroth and swear, saying, Surely there shall not one of these men of this evil generation see that good land which I swear to give unto your fathers. Save Caleb the son of Jephunneh, he shall see it, and to him will I give the land that he hath trodden upon, and to his children, because he hath wholly followed the Lord. Many Bible scholars believe that the Anakim's descendants were the Philistine giants that David faced, such as Goliath of Gath. Were the Anakim the giants who roamed in the Old Testament? After 40 years of wandering and Moses' death, it was time for the Israelites' forefathers to enter the Promised Land. The Anakim, on the other hand, remained in the area. Joshua and his army began defeating their enemies to take what was theirs. After many battles, the Anakim were the last people to be destroyed. The earthly giants could not match God's strength. Joshua's army overtook the giants, killing them and taking their land. The only ones remained in Gaza, Gath, and Ashdod. Finally, the Israelites inherited the promised land. Caleb recalls God's faithfulness and his promise to the people to inherit the land a few chapters later in Joshua 14. Even though he is now 85 years old, he is adamant about driving out the Anakim himself. After reviewing scripture, we can see that the Anakim and Nephilim are related, not interchangeable. Both beings were tall and feared by the people of the time. While the Nephilim are descended from demons or fallen angels, the Anakim are Anak's descendants with no supernatural ancestry. Both races, however, were evil enough to be exterminated by God and his people. Caleb and Joshua were rewarded for their faith by God. He wishes to bestow blessings on his children. Whatever obstacles may stand in our way, God wants us to believe that he is more powerful and that we can overcome through his strength. God is bigger than our giants. God's power is unrivaled. During the flood, the Nephilim were destroyed by his power. Anak's descendants literally fell with the walls of Jericho. What happened to the Rephaim? In Joshua, the giants make multiple reappearances throughout the book. Joshua and the Israelites didn't slay or remove all the people from Canaan, which creates a cycle of idolatry and deliverance in Judges. It isn't until 1 Samuel that we see giants again. Goliath and his brothers The most well-known giant in history is Goliath from the Bible. He was a champion from the Philistine camp who fought as an armored charioteer. A champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp. His height was six cubits and a span. 1 Samuel chapter 17 verse 4 We don't know what that information means at face value, 
because we don't measure things in cubits or spans. We measure them in feet and inches. So let us put it in layman's terms. Goliath was a massive man, standing at least 9 feet 9 inches tall. And when you consider the length of his arms when he lifted them up over his head, you can imagine what an imposing creature he must have been. It wasn't just his size though. He had a bronze helmet on his head and wore a coat of scale armor of bronze weighing 5,000 shekels. On his legs he wore bronze greaves and a bronze javelin was slung on his back. His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod and its iron point weighed 600 shekels. His shield bearer went ahead of him. 1 Samuel chapter 17 verses 5 through 7 He was dressed in what we'd call a mail coat. The Philistines armed up by donning a large canvas-like undergarment with overlapping bronze ringlets. Goliath, on the other hand, wore a bronze helmet, bronze leggings, greaves to protect his shins, and carried a bronze javelin or spear slung between his shoulders. From shoulder to knee, this coat of mail shielded the wearer from the enemy's weapons. Body armor of this size and type weighed 5,000 shekels of bronze, which equates to between 175 and 200 pounds in modern terms. The head of his spear alone weighed 600 shekels of iron, or about 20 to 25 pounds. According to the written account, he marched ahead of him with a shield carrier. The Hebrew word used here refers to the largest battle shield, which is the size of an adult man. He was unmistakably intended to protect his body from incoming arrows. So, in addition to his body armor, Goliath had this guy racing ahead of him, wielding a man-sized shield for extra protection. Allow your mind to picture such an imposing sight for a moment. Consider how terrifying it would be to take on a giant of this size who was protected by this much armor. Without a doubt, the odds are stacked against anyone foolish enough to confront him in battle. Take note of what this gigantic warrior did. Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? And are you not the servants of Saul? Choose a man and have him come down to me. If he is able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. 1 Samuel chapter 17 verses 8-9 through 9. Goliath proposed a popular strategy in Eastern civilization, namely representative combat or a one-on-one -on -one conflict. He'd represent the Philistine army, while Israel's choice would represent the Israelite army. Regardless of who won, his army was victorious, and whoever lost, his entire army perished. There's no reason to involve your entire army in this. Just send a fighter, and I'll fight him. I am the victor. I am the best. Goliath did not issue this challenge once and then disappear. No, his challenge lasted 40 days. 
For forty days the Philistine came forward every morning and evening and took his stand. 1 Samuel chapter 17 verse 16 He marched out there every morning and evening for well over a month, flaunting his size and strength, daring someone to challenge him. Meanwhile, in the Judean mountains near Bethlehem, a young boy named David was tending to his father's sheep. He was much too young to join the army. David was most likely unaware of the conflict between the Israelites and the Philistines at the time. He might not have even heard of Goliath. His only knowledge was that three of his older brothers were serving in Saul's army. On the other hand, David's father was concerned about his three eldest sons. Jesse was getting older and would probably be unable to complete the journey across the mountains on his own. So he called his youngest son and told him, David, I need you to run an errand for me. Take now for your brothers an ephah of this roasted grain and these ten loaves, and run to the camp to your brothers. Bring also these ten cuts of cheese to the commander of their thousand, and look into the welfare of your brothers, and bring back news of them. 1 Samuel chapter 17 verses 17 through 18 And David rose up early in the morning, and left the sheep with a keeper, and took and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the trench, as the host was going forth to the fight, and shouted for the battle. 1 Samuel chapter 17 verse 20 Then as he approaches the outskirts of the Israelite camp, he notices the troops preparing for battle and hears the war cry. He simply wants to observe and see what happens. Then David dashed to the front lines to greet his brothers, leaving his luggage in the care of the baggage handler. David left his things with the keeper of supplies, ran to the battle lines and asked his brothers how they were. As he was talking with them, Goliath, the Philistine champion from Gath, stepped out from his lines and shouted his usual defiance, and David heard it. 1 Samuel chapter 17 verses 22 through 23 Consider the following scenario. While standing there with his three brothers, David hears a loud cry from across the valley, and instantly, everyone in his immediate vicinity is sprinting to the back and crawling inside their tents. And all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him, and were sore afraid. 1 Samuel chapter 17 verse 24 Keep in mind that David has never seen or heard of this Gath giant's challenge. As he looks across the battlefield, he sees a giant of a man covered in armor, shouting threats and defiance and cursing the God of Israel. And David was enraged by this. Remember, this is the 41st day that the Israelites have faced Goliath, but this is the first time it has happened to David. Then David spoke to the men who were standing by him, saying, What will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should taunt the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in accord with this word, saying, Thus it will be done for the man who kills him. 
1 Samuel chapter 17 verses 26 through 27. David then meets with King Saul. David said to Saul, Let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. Saul replied, You are not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. You are only a young man, and he has been a warrior from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it, and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it, and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. Then Saul dressed David in his own tunic. He put a coat of armor on him and a bronze helmet on his head. David fastened on his sword over the tunic and tried walking around because he was not used to them. I cannot go on these, he said to Saul, because I am not used to them. So he took them off. Then he took his staff in his hand, chose five smooth stones from the stream, put them in the pouch of his shepherd's bag, and with his sling in his hand, approached the Philistine. 1 Samuel chapter 17, verses 32 through 40. So, here's David, dressed in his most basic shepherd robes and armed with his most basic shepherd weapons, his sling and staff, and ready to fight. Then there's the watershed moment. Meanwhile, the Philistine with his shield bearer in front of him kept coming closer to David. He looked David over and saw that he was little more than a boy, glowing with health and handsome, and he despised him. He said to David, Am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Come here, he said, and I'll give your flesh to the birds and the wild animals. David said to the Philistine, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. This very day I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. 1 Samuel chapter 17 verses 41 through 46. Consider the possibilities. David remained unafraid in the face of this monstrous beast. David's only weapons were a sling and a stone against a giant clad in 200 pounds of armor. As a Philistine moved closer to attack him, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet him. Reaching into his bag and taking out a stone, he slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead, 
and he fell face down on the ground. So David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone. Without a sword in his hand, he struck down the Philistine and killed him. David ran and stood over him. He took hold of the Philistine's sword and drew it from the sheath. After he killed him, he cut off his head with a sword. When the Philistines saw that their hero was dead, they turned and ran. 1 Samuel chapter 17 verses 47 through 51 The Philistines did not return after that. When they realized their champion was no longer alive, they split the scene. Then the men of Israel and Judah surged forward with a shout and pursued the Philistines to the entrance of Gath into the gates of Ekron. Their dead were strewn along the Shearaim road to Gath and Ekron. When the Israelites returned from chasing the Philistines, they plundered their camp. Then David brought the head of the Philistine to Jerusalem. David took the Philistine's head and brought it to Jerusalem. He put the Philistine's weapons in his own tent. 1 Samuel chapter 17 verse 54 The biblical story of David and Goliath is one of the most well-known stories in the Bible. It is a lesson in bravery, faith, and overcoming the seemingly impossible. Was Goliath a Nephilim? Some scholars believe that Goliath the Gittite, a Gath resident, belonged to a race known as the Nephilim. Other experts argue that Goliath was a Rephaite because the Nephilim were destroyed in the Great Flood during Noah's time. Only Noah's family survived. Nearly 20 times in the Bible, the Rephaites are mentioned. Some scholars believe the Philistines descended from the Anakim. Goliath's champion status is enhanced by the fact that Gath was an ancient Anakim stronghold. Some scientists believe Goliath has an identifiable family tree, implying autosomal dominant inheritance, which causes familial acromegaly or gigantism. In biblical times, Goliath was a colossal figure. The Relations of Goliath There are also other giants mentioned in 2 Samuel chapter 21 verses 15 through 22 and 1 Chronicles chapter 20 verses 4 through 8 who were related to Goliath in the Bible. This event occurred when David was old. Even a great man of God grows old. As the years went on, David became unable to fight as he once did. In this battle against the Philistines, David's life was endangered when he grew faint in battle against a descendant of Goliath. 2 Samuel chapter 21 verses 15 through 22 Now the Philistines were at war again with Israel. David went down with his servants, and as they fought against the Philistines, David became weary. Then Ishbi Benob, who was among the descendants of the giant, the weight of whose spear was three hundred shekels, six pounds of bronze, was armed with a new sword, and he intended to kill David. But Abishai the son of Zeruiah came to David's aid and struck and killed the Philistine. Then David's men swore to him, You shall not go out again with us to battle 
so that you do not extinguish the lamp of Israel. After this, there was war again with the Philistines at Gob, Gezer. At that time, Sibachai the Hushathite killed Saph, Zippai, who was among the descendants of the giant. There was war with the Philistines again at Gob, and Elhanan the son of Jerry Oregum, a Bethlehemite, killed Goliath the Gittite, whose spear shaft was like a weaver's beam. There was war at Gathagain, where there was a man of great stature who had six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot, twenty-four in number. He also was a descendant of the giants. And when he taunted and defied Israel, Jonathan, the son of Shimei, David's brother, killed him. These four warriors were descended from the giant in Gath, and they fell by the hands of David and his servants. The Israelites faced the challenge of what they would do when they saw weakness in their leader. Since it was a weakness that could be understood, David's increasing frailty and old age, they needed to rally around their leader and supply what he could not. In his advanced age, it was time for David to retire from the field of battle. His season as a warrior had passed. This description of victory over Philistine giants showed that Israel could slay giants without David. Sibachai, Elhanan, Jonathan. These men accomplished heroic deeds when David was finished with fighting giants. God will continue to raise up leaders when the leaders of the previous generation pass from the scene. The defeat of these four giants is rightly credited to the hand of David and the hand of his servants. David had a role in this through his example, his guidance, and his influence. With twenty-four fingers and toes, six on each hand, on six on each foot. This described an unnamed man of great stature from Gath. Since Goliath was from Gath, these were Goliath's sons or brothers. The Philistine warriors are also all called Raphaites, RSV, or descendants of Rapha, giants, NRSV, who are one of the pre-Israelite groups in Canaan and famous for their size. The story of Goliath in the Bible attests to God's mighty power and great strength over his enemies, even in the face of overwhelming odds. The story of Goliath in the Bible teaches us that even if we are currently battling big enemies and giant problems that are threatening our peace and livelihood, our almighty Creator will protect and deliver us from all the challenges of this life. We should keep in mind that the giants of the Bible were not 40-foot colossi who sat on houses and picked their teeth with elm trees. In trying times, it can be difficult to make the choice to have hope. It is much simpler for us to become crippled by fear and anxiety when we are confronted with very real problems for which there are few solutions. Why is it so difficult to believe that God is greater than every challenge that we face? It's possible that we'll say something like, I can see my problems, but I can't see God. On most days, it is difficult for me to hear God because my problems are so loud. 
When faced with challenges of this magnitude, it's easy for me to forget how great and powerful God has been in the past and will be again in the future. Even prophets had times when they needed to be reminded to be still and trust in God's plan for them. What challenges are you up against in your life right now? Is there a large issue coming to attack? There are times in everyone's life when it seems like so much is going on around them that they must be under some kind of assault. Learning how to make God bigger than your problems is about faith or trust in the Lord. Proverbs chapter 3 verses 5 through 6 Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. God doesn't save us from having difficult times. It is imperative that we recognize that God is with us even amid trials and tribulations.